Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Astrid Edwards. This week, we are exploring the idea of yesterday, how what has happened in the past influences our present. Now, today I am joined by the delightful Sally Spicer from Future Women, and we are going to be speaking to Dr. Anita Heiss. Anita is an award-winning author of non-fiction, historical fiction, commercial women's fiction, and children's novels. She is a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales and a board member of University of Queensland Press. Her latest book, Bila Yara Dungalang Dore, is the first commercial work of fiction published in Australia with Aboriginal language on the cover. I do hope you enjoy this interview. Anita, I am so pleased to be talking to you today on Anonymous Was a Woman. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, first off, absolute congratulations on your latest novel, Billy Yaradangalangdare. Very good. <laughs> Close enough. Would you like to fix my pronunciation, Anita? Look, you and I both know that I was saying it wrong for months. It's Billy Yaradangalangdare. This is a beautiful work of historical fiction that has just been released in 2021. For the audience, can you give us the brief summary of what happens? No spoilers, of course. Okay, so the story begins with the Great Flood of Gundagai in 1852, where two Wiradjuri men, Yadi and Jackie Jackie, went out on canoes and saved approximately 59 lives over three days, where a third of the town drowned. So it starts with the story of heroism. Actually, heroism and homecomings is are the main themes. The story moves to Wagga with Yadi's daughter, Wagadine, who, under the Masters and Servants Act, is moved there by the Bradley family. And what we see unfold over her time in Wagga is a relationship or a very strange friendship between her and Louisa Spencer or Louisa Bradley, a Quaker who wants desperately, in her words, to help Aboriginal people and find equality for Aboriginal people and convicts, which were, I learned when researching, two of the main platforms of the Quakers when they came to Australia. Without spoilers, the story revolves around Wagadine's depression and decline in terms of her emotional capacity and mental capacity because she's been removed from her family and wanting to go home. So there is a story of homecoming. And it's a love story because I believe in love and I find love stories are a great way to drive the stories that I want to tell. Anita, where did the idea for the novel come from? What was the impetus for writing it? Another great question because I never imagined in my wildest dreams that I would write a novel like this, but Simon and Schuster said, we want an epic historical novel from you at 130,000 words. And I'm like, I don't even want to read 130,000 words. That's like a PhD. It's more than a PhD. I've done a PhD. I had no real specifics other than I wanted to write a story about life for women, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women living on the land, you know, in the mid-19th century. So we'd had these conversations in May of 2017. A month later, it was the anniversary, the 165th anniversary of the Great Flood of Gundagai. And on the main street of uh, the Sheridan Street, the main street of Gundagai, the town unveiled a beautiful sculpture of the heroes, Yari and Jackie Jackie. And I thought to myself, 
it's taken this long for some national recognition for those heroes. And how is it that the whole world does not know about this story? Because it was, it is, remains one of Australia's greatest, most devastating natural disasters. How don't we all know about this and how don't we know about these heroes? So I knew the story would start there, but still didn't know where it would go. And then six months later, I started learning my language, my Wiradjuri language at Charles Sturt University in the classroom and on the banks of the river and out in the floodplains. So it was like a whole range of different learning experiences with Uncle Stan Grant and his protégés there. And while I was doing that, I'm standing in the floodplains of Wagga and I'm trying to imagine what life must have been like for my ancestors, you know, not only back in the 1800s, 1900s, but tens of thousands of years ago. And slowly but surely things started to fall into place and learning the language taught me to think like stop thinking like through an English mind, an English language mind, and start thinking through a Wiradjuri language mind. And then the stories just sort of started to fall into place. This week on Anonymous Was a Woman, our broad theme is yesterday and we're interrogating the importance of the past and what has already happened and how it kind of, how it impacts our present. And I guess there are two questions that I have for you from that, Anita. Firstly, for you, what is the importance of historical fiction? And I know that you said your publisher asked you, but you know, beyond your publisher asking you, why does historical fiction uh, matter to us today? And also reclaiming your language, learning your language, which you didn't get to grow up with. That is also a very personal journey into the past. I think for many people in my vintage and older, we were always conditioned to believe that we could only learn history through academic history books and nonfiction and so forth. But the reality is people read differently. We learn differently. And I used to say, like, our memoirs, our autobiographies are our history books as well. If we validate and we have faith in our oral testimony and so forth. And I think, you know, I wanted to reach, like I did with my chiclet, I wanted to reach an audience in Australia who aren't going to pick up a non-fiction book or a textbook and so forth, but love to read. And I'd previously done Who Am I? The Diary of Mary Talents, which was set in 1937-38. And that story was about stolen generations, but also the day of morning protests and conference. I'd also written Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, which was about World War II and Wiradjuri involvement in the war, but also the Carrot Breakout and Life Wiradjuri People in Cowra during that time. And both those novels are hugely successful. And by successful, I mean engagement with readers, engagement with people in school, kids reading about things that I never learned in school. I don't know about you and I don't know about your listeners, but if if you were right, if you went to school from the 70s, we didn't learn this stuff in schools or the 70s and prior. So I understand the role that historical fiction plays in reaching people and I want to reach as many people as I can. So I can't imagine writing the complete history of the Gundagai flood. And the, the other point of doing it as an historical novel is that there's already material out there, obviously a whole range of different writings around the flood. And I just wanted to add to that. It's not the definitive thing. It is part of a collection of writings that exist. And I can see now that the reaction that it's having is it is reaching a different audience as well. So the language side of it, if we just go to the title. So, yeah, I started learning my language. I, I know, I know, like, 
0.00000% of what needs to be known, right? I know enough to be confident in acknowledging country wherever I am and acknowledging elders and my ancestors and stating where I'm from, my family and my country. Fluently, I can say that and I feel empowered. I know it's empowering for people in the audience to hear it. But there's a completely different grammar system. And I remember sitting in Wagga the day after the first class with all my books. You know, we, we've got language dictionary, grammar book, useful word books, CDs, colouring books, you know, we've got, we're very lucky. We've got a lot of resources through the hard work of uh, Uncle Stan Grant and Dr. John Rudder. But I'm sitting there going, this is a woman with a PhD and I published, I don't know, at the time, 16 books or something, going, I'm never going to get this. You're feeling this absolute failure because it was really difficult. You have to let go of English altogether, anything you've ever learned, because it's not a translation. You don't pick the word, say, woman or, let me say, family or, you know, we can have six words for one English word. Okay, so even the word Yinjimara, which is my favourite word, and the name of one of the characters means respect, it means to honour, it also means to move gently and to be polite. So it is so complex. If we look at the title, Billa Yadadangalangdurai, Billa means river. I think Yadadangalangdurai has 22 letters in it or something, right? And so Yadadang means dream. Galang is the plural, so that means many dreams, and Duray is the action of having the many dreams. So it's quite complicated. And so, for instance, Galang, if I say you and I are Yina, so we are women, so I'm a Yina, together we are Yina Galang, so that's the plural. So when I was, everyone was asking me, how do you say the title? And so I made this video, I thought I was like just the Ants Pants top shelf best speaker ever, make this video that 6,000 people look at overnight on Twitter, only to find out the next day when Aunty Elaine Lomas calls me and says, you know, you said it wrong, right? And I was horrified because <sighs> I was saying, Billy had a dungalong deray, and it's deray. And then some people, and then I made phone calls. I'm, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. I'm they're like, answer, like, just make another video. I go, yeah, it kind of doesn't work like that. And I'd made a video for Dimix for their book club. I'd made a video for the Australian Publishers Association for their conference. Anyway, I'm telling you this because I was beating myself up about this. And then I rang one of the other Inigalung in my cohort and I said, oh, my God, oh, my God. She said, Anita, you are learning what should have been your first language at the age of 50. We're going to make mistakes. And then I realised. And so the, the upside of that mistake is now I can have that conversation at festivals and in media and in lectures and in Reconciliation Week keynotes, reminding people that everywhere they are today, there is an original language and English is the second language of this country. That is a really lovely insight for all of us to think of. I have had the great privilege of learning a bunch of different European languages and it is so different to think in a different language. And the idea that you were separated from your language and your language was forcibly erased it doesn't matter if you say it wrong once. What matters is we all learn from you, Anita. So thank you. And I think for me, I was sitting in that room, in the, I sat in the classroom and I got overwhelmed. Everybody gets overwhelmed at some point for what, whatever the issue we're talking about, nation building, language, reclamation, whatever. And I just got overwhelmed because I, 
And I I was, you know, obviously aware that I was sitting in a space, absolute privilege compared to my mother and my grandmother. So my grandmother was taken to Cootamundra Aboriginal Girls Home under the Act of Protection, removed from her family with her sister. My mother was born on a Randy Aboriginal mission in Cowra where she wasn't allowed to speak language. And here I am at the age of 50 in a university, being supported by university structure and infrastructure, learning the language. And, you know, so there's, there's... there's an absolute feeling of empowerment and absolute feeling of sovereignty around that. But then there's this grief around knowing that I'm privileged while my old people weren't allowed to just live their lives. You explore the friendship between Wagadine and Louisa, who are two different women of different cultures and different languages. But I think something that you do really well is that you communicate the experiences of women as universal across culture and across time, even though in ways they are different. And I think Wagadine is a really good, she's a really good conduit to that. You know, when she's watching Louisa and James get married and she goes, oh, man and wife. So, you know, is the man gets to be a man and the wife, you know, is a wife. You know, I think she has some phenomenally cultural insights but at the same time it is sort of this universal connection that is couched in that empathy and I suppose on Louise's side respect although perhaps not on Wagadine's. What do you hope that your readers take from the relationship between the women as I suppose as separate from you know the romance in the novel or the romantic love in the novel? Oh, there's a couple of things. I totally forgot about that man and wife thing. I thought we were, you were going to lead into the scene where she's doing the corset up and Wobbenine's saying, like, what are you doing? And, and, and Louise's like, I'm trying to make my stomach flatter. And, and Wobbenine, and also, the like, back at the camp, all the women are trying to eat more, not to be flat. So I found that to be, for me, I found those sort of moments in time and the way that Wobbenine would have thought would have been at, were authentic. But I think what I wanted to, there's a couple of things there. I want to show, as I do with a lot of my women's books, that we have a lot of things in common as women. If we, if we think about emotion, as human beings, regardless of cultural background, regardless of socioeconomics, regardless of geography, we have more things in common as human beings if we look at our emotions than we have that's different. So we all, we can fall in love, which we see. We fall out of love. We, we have, we feel fear. We feel rejection. We feel pain. We feel loss. All those things that have nothing to do with whether you're a man or a woman or rich or poor and so forth. So I hope that women, people see that similarity between the emotions that the women feel through their own journeys. I think for me, something that stood out for me towards the end of writing that novel and since finishing it, because you see a lot of things in the novel once it's finished and then other people point things out to you that didn't even know were there. And I think for me what became obvious, and I didn't necessarily write it that way at the time, but it is obvious now that we often have a lot of people, Aboriginal people have a lot of women, you know, I have a lot of women who say, who pay a lot of lip service about what they want to do, what they're going to do, and once a year we'll do something in Reconciliation Week or NAIDOC Week. I've had it happen this week as well. But their actual, their motivation is really based on what's in it for me. And when what's in it for me is gone, then the Aboriginal person is of no use anymore. It's performative. And so for Louisa, I mean, Wagadine, without giving too much away, so for Louisa, we know, the reader knows that Wagadine ends up in Wagga because Louisa wants her as a confidant and a friend and everything, even though she had the power to leave her there. She talks about, I wanted to give you equality, I want you to have a better life. 
but she really wanted Wobbadine to help her with her goal of for what she was going to do, which may or may not be realised at the end. So I think I hope readers can see that that's clear and that they need to be aware of their own behaviour as we journey together into the future because it is a bit of a story of re- the beginning of it, if we talk about reconciliation. You know, those men that went out on the canoes, they saved white people. They didn't talk about black and white. They just talked, they actually, it was about humanity, but they were saving non-Indigenous people. So if that's not the greatest act of reconciliation, again, us leading the way. But I hope readers see a little bit of themselves in, in the female characters. I think we all have friends. I don't know about you, but I've got friends from all around the world. I have lots of non-Indigenous feminine friends who are like sisters to me. And I think there are moments where both Wolverdine and Louisa have those moments as well because we do see Louisa gives Wagadine a sense of humanity by calling her by her proper name the first time they meet. Don't curtsy. Come and sit with me. Have a cup of tea with me. You know, we see that that generosity of spirit, which should be happening all the time anyway. Yeah, I love that. And I think that it's such a thoughtful and sort of geniusly crafted novel in that, you know, I totally agree, you know, Yadi and Jackie, Jackie, they go out on, on their canoes and they save people. And Louisa does give, you know, the respect of using Wagadine's name, but unlike Yadi and Jackie, Jackie, when it comes to some kind of reconciliation that is actually going to cost her something in this case, her confidant, that's not something that she's willing to actualize. She wants to exist in a sphere where she can have it both ways, where she can empower her but in her really damaging Eurocentric universe and she doesn't need to I suppose help Wagadine be separate from her and I I thought that was a brilliant commentary especially in today's society that often we see people of privilege and white people willing to express lip service and go to rallies and do things like that but when it starts to cost them something they're notably absent. It's also like Louisa is doing I'm going to help you but I'm going to control the way it happens. Exactly. And also this notion of, you know, it's a big deal that Louisa calls Wagadine by her name instead of Wilma. Like it shouldn't be a big deal. It should have been completely normal, but it's a big deal in that space because it's the slightest level of respect that she's being shown for the first time. And I think your book sort of builds on that with its title, Bila Yarudangalandere. I hope I've said that right. You know, there is power in the title itself in you saying that and demanding that people who haven't given your people and First Nations people or Indigenous people respect actually have to say that title. I think there's real power in that. Moving on to, I suppose, the audiobook as opposed to reading it, do you have different responses from your audience depending on whether they read or listen to it? Because I listen to it and and it felt like I was listening to, it, it was poet, it, it was poetry. It was lyrical and it was beautiful. And I loved Wagadine and Yinjimata and Yari and Miyagun. I loved hearing all of these words and feeling like I was being given access to a world that I had never seen before. Oh, thank you very much. It's interesting because I, I'm fairly sure this is the first time that the, it, actually it is, it's the first time that the audiobook was released on the same day as the hard copy and the digital copy. So what I've found is really interesting is that many people have bought two versions of the book. They've bought the hard copy and they've bought the audio. And I've got a couple of friends that have read both, which is extraordinary. And many people have said the same thing as you. And kudos and 
absolute thanks to Marla Shelton, who did the voice for the audio for. She's now in the studio doing the voice for Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming, and both those books come out, you know, 10 and 11 years ago. And she had also read for Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. And I think what's different is because now I'm insisting that you, I must have an, uh, an Aboriginal reader for these books, that... Previously, my last two novels, Titters and Barbarian Cherry Blossoms, were read by Australian actors who live in the UK. And I swear they all sound like Louisa Spencer. Really beautiful voices and everything, but I'm going, oh, this is really embarrassing. Like Because they, they, it just does not work. But, I, you know, I get a choice of five people to choose from and I choose the ones that at least sound like a, a little bit Australian. But I think also as we move forward in the space and we recognise that we need to be using Indigenous creatives and Indigenous actors for these roles. So she's done an amazing job and um, I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, so I think in terms of audience and people reading, all I was really concerned about with writing this novel was getting the story right and that the Aboriginal people, the Wiradjuri people living on country, in particular down in Wagga and Gundagai and Brungle, and the people who are descendants of those who died in the flood in Gundagai, all I wanted for, in terms of audience was to make sure they were happy. So, we, you know, I had Arnie Sony Piper and Miriam Crane launch it down in Gundagai. We had, we had a descendant of one of the survivors of the Gundagai flood who was saved by Yari. Ian Horsley was there and his great-grandfather was saved by Yari and, you know, he stood up. He read some drafts. I spoke to him on the phone when I was writing. He stood up on the night at the launch and just said, I just want to say thank you because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those men. And then we then Arnie Winnie and Arnie Sue Bolger launched it at the Tumut Library, which is just down the road from Gundagai the next morning. And the, their speeches and their reading of the work just made me relax, I can tell you that, made me feel that I had done what I'd set out to do. And then Arnie Elaine, who's Uncle Stan Grant's sister, as I mentioned, she launched it in Canberra. And her reading of the work of as a fluent language speaker, as at Wiradjuri, you know, her reflections on it made me see it through a different lens as well because she's an older woman than me. She has different knowledge to me. And we're going to launch it down in Griffith, which is Wiradjuri country as well, and back in Bogger in June. So I want everybody to get something out of it. But my core audience, my concern were those people. Anita, you have done a beautiful job putting my industry hat on. Your books sell, your books are commercial successes and you are well known as an author, but you are also moving the publishing industry and helping the reading public in Australia move as well. And it is fucking fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Anita. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, as always, to Hachette Publishing for making Anonymous Was a Woman possible. 